18. Please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 18. Tonight's going to look different. Um, there have been times where I've approached smaller texts. There's been times where I've approached slightly larger, up to a chapter. Um, but uh, we're going to do a, we're going to uh, cover a whole lot more ground. We're actually looking at two full chapters tonight, so it'll really be more of a survey. I'm looking at chapter 18 and 19, and there's a reason why I want us to get this bigger picture here. Um, we're not going to be reading the whole of these chapters. I mean, that could take a good chunk of our time. We're going to be kind of selectively looking through it, but keep your Bibles open if you've got them. If you're skimming in your phone, that's, that's fine too, but we'll be looking at a few different places, and we'll read some bits and pieces together um, as we, again, try to look at this bigger picture Following off of what we saw last week, so chapter 17, we did really the whole of it last week, didn't we? And uh, so, so this is closely following that, um, and I'll explain some of, again, that also is feeding into the way I'm approaching this. But beginning in chapter 18 here, chapter 17 is introduced what we're going to now go more in depth in, in chapter 18. So John has often done this, uh, the, the technical word is recapitulation. Um, really, it's a simple way to say that John is going to go back and say again what he said, but in a different way, going more in depth and often uh, from a different angle. And so we saw God's judgment poured out in chapter 17, and it's total, complete judgment against the world, which we expect by this point in Revelation. And now in chapter 18, he's going to look at that same judgment from a different angle, go more in depth, and then lead into the victory associated with it in chapter 19. So I want us to see the end of the judgment, and then going into chapter 19, this victory that is given to us. And so Babylon, we're familiar with that verbiage by now, again, all over in chapter 17 and before. Babylon represents the world in opposition to God. You know, they would have envisioned probably the Roman Empire. They would have envisioned um, all the, the characteristics of Rome as this, what to them felt like a world empire, and indeed, for the Mediterranean world, it was. Um, but it represents something symbolically larger here, so it still speaks to us. I mean, even though Rome, of course, has been fallen for you know, 1,600 years or more as an empire, yet so the picture here is bigger than simply an earthly empire. But it's that the idea of the world, the city of man, the language I used last time, is stands against God. But here, God's judgment comes against the earth, and it is destroyed permanently, forever. The world as it was opposing God. And so in verses one through three, we won't read them, but just glance there at the beginning of chapter 18. Here's the declaration of this judgment, of this coming destruction um, that we're seeing here once again, having already seen it in chapter 17. And then in verses four through eight, it really addresses God's people. And I do want to read that. So look at verse four with me. Hearing this judgment is coming. Now verse four. Then I heard another voice from heaven. This is John speaking saying, come out of her, that is Babylon, representing opposition to God, worldliness, the world as it is in sin. Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, but God has remembered her iniquities. Just to pause there, oftentimes you'll hear David and others in the Bible, and this comes up in the New Testament as well, speaking about that God will not remember our iniquities. What do we call that? Forgiveness, right? God will forgive our iniquities. He will not remember our iniquities. It's not that God doesn't know that we did them, but in other words, he's saying, I'm not gonna count them against you. They're done, they're forgiven. 
And that's the opposite of what we see here. Now here at the end of verse five, and God has remembered her iniquities. And so rather than forgiving them because they are unrepentant, because they have not turned to Christ, the world here, her iniquities will be judged in perfect righteousness. And so there's this voice from heaven, presumably an angel, some sort of angelic being, is warning God's people in just these two verses that we read not to follow the ways of Babylon. Don't do what Babylon has done. Don't go the way of the world. Stay free from the influence of the world. It's greed, it's lust, it's pride, it's selfishness. Don't go this way. That's the way of the world. These things belong to Babylon, not to the kingdom of God, not to the kingdom of light, but rather they belong to the kingdom of darkness. It's not right, John says, that a Christ follower would exhibit these things in their lives. It is not right that that someone would claim Christ and then live a life that looks like Babylon. Rather, live a life that would, would be representative of the fruits of the Spirit, of the kingdom of God. In other words, the things that we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, this big picture of what the kingdom of God should look like, Matthew 5 through 7, what we're doing on Sundays. Don't go the way of Babylon. Or else, he says, its judgment will be yours. Those who give themselves this kind of life This is the judgment they'll face. During this time, uh, Babylon, again here the picture given to us is of a mighty, uh, a boastful uh, empire, right? Boastful in its glory, boastful in its might and in its glamour, these things of the world. The world loves doing it up big, doesn't it? The world loves bragging about itself and being grandiose in these ways. But look here in the text as you read through, and and you could at least glance through it and you'll get the idea here It is torn down in a single day. All of its greatness, all of its money, its wealth, its resources, its its reputation, all these things torn down in a single day. The, The idea being in a moment. All of these generations to build this wealth and power, all of these sort of things, and they're done in just a moment. Still in chapter 18, in verses 9 through 24, so really look at the big, the bulk of the rest of the chapter, there is this declaration and an extended lamentation. Um, You know what a lamentation is, don't you? This sort of regretting and thinking about, lamenting, uh, reflecting with sadness on what has happened. It's this extended lamentation about the fall of Babylon. And again, this is not the ancient city of Babylon. This would not even be true of Rome alone. Again, it's broader. You can look through here and see this is speaking more broadly than a single city or a single place. The, um, the dwellers of the earth, you know that title by now, don't you? Think back, we've seen that several times. Who are the dwellers of the earth? Inhabitants of the earth in some translations. Yeah, the unbelievers, the lost. Thank you, Richard. And so these, these unbelievers, these dwellers of the earth, in other words, meaning they are of the earth, right? We are told to be in the world, but not of the world. These are the people who are of the world, the unbelievers, They've they've trusted in this world and they are shocked by its fall, disillusioned. They don't know how to explain it. They've had all all of their wealth, their pride, all these things that would have given them a sense of identity and groundedness and, and, and even their own sense of power and glory. It's gone up in smoke. It's nothing. Remember what Jesus teaches us, that we we should not place our hope in this world. It's easy to do that, isn't it? It's easy to do that in kind of two extremes. It's easy to do that when we have a whole lot, right? 
when we have the big house, when we have lots in our bank account, when we feel like our 401k is doing well, then it's really, oh yeah, I've got confidence in the earth. Everything seems to be going for me. Or when we're in despair, we feel like nothing's going for us, we still think, oh, if I only had these things, if I only had the things of this world, if I only had more money, if I only had more of this or that. Jesus teaches us not to place our hope in this world. No matter which one of those we fall in or somewhere in between, But he also says, don't fear its inevitable destruction either. You realize that this earth, as it is now, we'll talk more about this in a moment, as it is now, is going to be destroyed. We should not put our hope and our trust in this world. It is temporary. Our hope is in a renewed earth. Not merely some spiritual realm floating around up there in the clouds. That's not what I'm talking about. You know that by now, I've, I've hit this enough. But there is a renewed earth, a new heavens and a new, a new heavens, a new earth, right? We'll get there in chapter 21. You can even just flip a few pages and you'll see that kind of the title there, new heavens and new earth. A new creation. Now there's the, the conversation, is, is it really just sort of a renewing of this globe, of this earth, or is it sort of a putting aside in a whole new one? I mean, at the end of the day, I'm inclined to think it is a renewal of this earth, but if it's not, in many ways, it is going to be a whole lot like this earth was. I'm looking back, just think back to the Garden of Eden as sort of a guide in this. But rather than Eden being one little part of a whole earth, it'll be the whole world is Eden. We'll, we'll get there soon. And I, and I look forward to looking at chapter 21 here in a few weeks. So that's chapter 18. Let's move on to chapter 19. How are we doing on time? Okay. Verses 1 through 5 here. In chapter 19 now, there's a, a song of rejoicing in God's judgment. Isn't it interesting? I'm just, let's, we'll read a little bit of it. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute. Again, that's Babylon embodied here who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And we could go on there, the smoke going up forever and ever and so on. Uh, We know this picture by now. And so it's just interesting that the world lamented the fall of Babylon, unsurprisingly, and yet heaven rejoices at God's judgment coming. The voice from heaven, again, presumably an angelic being, A voice from heaven calls for God's people to join in in the rejoicing. Look there at at the end in verse 5. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. In other words, saying join in. Sing with us. This is what God has been doing. Always wanting to apply the text today. You know, we don't want these merely as abstract ideas. How How do we apply this text as a church, as individuals? What should we take away from this and I pause because we could we could apply this wrongly we could say oh look God's people are rejoicing at God's judgment that means we don't need to worry about compassion we don't need to worry about all this. we could, we should just rejoice God's going to burn this place God's going to judge those people don't, don't don't go there too quickly I mean, I, there's a whole lot of things that I could do to discuss that, but a commentator, Tom Schreiner, who I've recommended to you before, he really makes an important point and I think says it really plainly, that to praise God's judgment comes only after, not before. That as long as we are in this intermediate time between Christ's first coming, 
and his second coming, which we're going to see in just a moment in chapter 19, in this intermediate time, we are called to pray and to labor for the salvation of the lost. So as we speak about the dwellers of this earth, we don't do it with, with sort of a snide remark. We don't do it with sort of a, a lack of compassion or empathy. No, such were some of you, Paul says. Such was I. I was a dweller of this earth once until I was 16 years old when God saved me. And so in this intermediate time, we don't rejoice, but there will be a time where that intermediate time is gone. The age of salvation is gone and judgment has come and we will rejoice. And there, no longer with sin, no longer with the baggage that we carry because of sin and our finitude, we'll be, there will be no question that what God has done is good and just. The great heavenly multitude uh, broke out in song. Uh, look at verse six there. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. I, I think I've mentioned this illustration to you before, but, but it's just so perfect. It really just, it sticks with me. Um, think about, and many of you could identify with this, think about if you've ever been to like a big concert or a big sports game. And it's one thing to kind of hear the noise of the sound system and all, but I, I mean when that's not the case. Like the roar of a football game or, or the roar, roar of a basketball game when it's the people roaring and applause and screaming. For me, again, I, maybe this sounds a little more pious, but I, I mention it because, because of the context here. But there's a, a gathering called Together for the Gospel that meets in Louisville, Kentucky every other year. Um, and I've got to go a couple of times. And it's in there, you know, where the Louisville Cardinals play basketball, so several thousand primarily pastors, and there's some other guests too, but primarily pastors get in there. And uh, in the, everything echoes, of course, because it's a big dome, right? Um, and we sing hymns. Old, just classic hymns from the 1800s and the 1700s. And most of it's a cappella. There'll be a little light accompaniment on a piano, and it's just thousands, most of it's men too, so it's real deep. And just the roar of these hymns echoing throughout thousands of people it's just an incredible experience. I love the preaching, too. There's preaching there. They'll do songs, and there's preaching. But it's the singing that sticks in my head, this roar, this heavenly roar. Um, and yet all of us, I think, can identify, most of us can identify with that phenomenon. That's what John is experiencing here. Like mighty peals of thunder, he says, they are crying out. And then they give this song, verses 6 through, through 8. In um, verses 6 through 10, we have the marriage supper of the lamb. It's this great celebratory meal um, that, that's recognizing the coming of the groom to meet his bride. We know who the groom is, don't we? Who's the groom? Christ. And who is his bride? The church. The church, all of the redeemed. Isn't that an incredible thought? The way that, again, the analogy that the Bible gives us is the way a groom longs to come be with his wife, that thought of even walking down the aisle. Think, think about that, the eagerness, Christ coming here. And so he says, put on a big dinner. Put on a big meal. Let's celebrate. And this isn't impromptu. I mean, this is, this is a long time coming, isn't it? And, uh, and I often joke about this. You know, what kind of food will be included? I know there's going to be homemade biscuits there. You know, there's going to be certain things that are definitely going to be there, Okay. And um, there's going to be some good T-bone steak. You know, there's going to be some food that's certainly going to be there. But it's a, it's a big celebration of the groom coming and the bride that Jesus is coming to take us 
home. And so thus that leads us into the next part. And then we see him in verse 11. After all of this waiting, after all of this time, suffering, doubts, questions, the rider comes on his white horse. Verses 11 through 21. This is the second coming of Christ. We've been waiting a long time for this, haven't we? And finally, here it is. Let's read from verse 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open. This is quite dramatic, y'all. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. These are descriptors. And, it, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Speaks of his glory, beauty. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, speaking of the judgment. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, speaking of purity and holiness, were following him on white horses. So there's an army with him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Which to, with which to strike down the nations, those opposed arrayed against him, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That goes back to the book of Psalms. He will tread the winepress of the fury, that goes back to Isaiah, of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So this is God's agent of judgment here. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We know exactly who this is. It's no question. It's very clear. Couldn't make it more plain than saying, by the way, this is Jesus. There's a force of, of opposition that is arrayed against the Lord, but, but I mean, they're swiftly defeated. Flip over to, to page, or depending on your version that you got before, you might just look down to verse 19. 19 says, And I saw the beast and the king, kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse, the one we just saw, and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who, is, who in its presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, that is the beast and the false prophet, the false prophet is the second beast that we saw back in chapter 16, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So, I mean, it looks like there's going to be a kind of a real confrontation, right? The, the armies of earth, um, the, 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 that which is, is arrayed here representing Babylon the Great, right? Headed by the beast and the false prophet. And um, the false prophet is called the false prophet because of the way that he is a deceiver. It's his M.O. He's a deceiver. They're arrayed against Christ coming down from heaven on the white horse, arrayed with his army. And you almost expect, so um, I'm a big Marvel um, Studios nerd. Has anyone seen the movie um, uh, Endgame? Right? There's this big final scene. You know what I'm talking about. There's this big final confrontation between every Marvel character has ever showed up, even some that are like ridiculous. You're like, Howard the Duck is in there? There's like these weird, goofy characters that don't even look very fierce, but yet they're there because that's part of the confrontation. And there's this big battle that goes on for really the last third of the movie. This isn't like that. Not at all. 
It looks like it's going to be that way. These big armies coming up. Jesus reaches down and swipes them like nothing. There is no confrontation. Jesus takes them out. And so it's this it's just incredible, incredible display here. Christ seizes the beast and the false prophet, and he just throws them into the lake of fire. It's, it's this sobering picture of how impotent uh, the forces of evil are before the king of thing, kings. They, they're not giving up. I mean, they're going to go down fighting. And, and they see Christ in all of his might, and yet there's a sense of awe, surely, and yet they still, we're, not, we're going after him. And yet there really is no fight. They're disposed of, thrown into the lake of fire. This is the first time that the lake of fire is mentioned in the book of Revelation, but it's going to be mentioned several times until the end. So this is kind of beginning that language here. It'll come up again. So again, so, sometimes people, um, and there's different ways that this goes about depending on your background, but sometimes people have the wrong picture of Jesus, honestly. Yes, he is our gentle savior. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is merciful. Yes, he is patient. But he is also the God of righteous judgment. We must not forget that. There are all kinds of people who say they're okay with Jesus, but it's their own fabrication of what they think Jesus is. This is Jesus. No less than the Jesus that we see in the Sermon on the Mount who is a gentle, loving teacher who's speaking against hypocrisy and the same Jesus who is welcoming children to love on them. This is the same Jesus. We have to get that. There's no contradiction either. In our culture, we think that, oh, okay, if you're, if you're, if you're righteous and if you're just, then that means you can't be gentle and merciful. No, no, no. God is both. And it's not as if he's like 50% mercy and then 50% judgment. No, he is all justice and all holiness and all love. God doesn't have parts. He is all of these things in perfection. The, the things we think we know about wisdom or judgment or love, we only know in, in a derived way and we only know in part because we're finite. Add to that the fact that sin corrupts our minds and our bodies in every way. So we struggle to see these things as they are, and yet the Bible says to us, this is good that God will do this. And Jesus is the agent of God's judgment. So just a few key takeaways here. Let's remember, come what may, Christians, we need not fear. Anything. Sickness, economy, things going on in our government, social things, we need not fear. It's not that we don't have concern. It's not that we pretend that things aren't going on. No, no, God tells us to be responsible citizens, to be involved. All that is granted. And yet we need not fear because all things will work out according to God's purpose. There there is nothing that will ever forestall God's plans. That's true in the big way and it's true in your life too. There's nothing that happens to you that God says, ooh, you didn't see that one coming. Not sure what I'm gonna do about that. That never happens. So have confidence in God, even in those toughest of times. The other thing here is, again, just to reflect on Christ as victor, the one who will be victorious. Jesus as God's agent of justice. Let us never forget that. 
So when we think about sin and we're tempted to to think that sin, really, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. If it wasn't, why would Jesus go through all this? This judgment, a lake of fire, his robe dripping with blood. It's not speaking about the atonement. It's a picture that was used in ancient military of one who was bringing an army, who was doing the work of the army. It's pretty graphic for us, but here it is. Uh, lastly, the world stands, the world that stands against God, the world that resists him, and we, we get pictures of that all the time, don't we? I mean, go, things going on in, in our government, things going on socially and culturally. We, we see a world that is opposed to God. And if, and if we don't see that world, either we are some, living in a cave or we're in some sort of denial, but the world stands opposed to God in this greatest sense. But as much as the world may rage against God, its judgment is coming. God is allowing what's going on now for the time being, but this will not go on forever. God has fixed the time and the day. And so for now, there is a time of hope for all who will repent. And so as Christians, we are the people who offer hope. We are God's ambassadors. We are Christ's people who are sent out which is why we emphasize missions and we emphasize evangelism and making disciples. God sends us out now. Take this message to all who will come, to all who will hear. But even as we do, we know that the end is coming. So that makes it all the more urgent that we tell. There are people here in this community who have never heard the gospel. You might find that hard to believe, but it is true. There are young people who have never heard and there are people who maybe have moved here from different countries or from different parts of the country who have never been inside of a church and never heard the gospel, never had a Christian friend and you might be the only Christian who ever interacts with them. And so we need to have a sense of urgency knowing what is coming for those who dwell on the earth, those who follow the beast. We know that there's spiritual warfare involved there. We have to pray that God would open their eyes to see, open their ears to hear, and yet God sends us out as his agents. Final um, thoughts or questions as we go through this. We're really coming up chapter 20. So next week, our brother Glenn is going to be leading, um, and so it'll be the week after that. God willing, we'll get to chapter 20. Very different as we look at the millennium. So very important one. I hope you're here I hope you might invite someone. This is going to be that, those big questions of, is there millennium? Is it literal? What does that look like? Do we come in before, after, all that? We'll deal with a good bit of that next week. But any, any final thoughts or questions as we, as we close out tonight, looking at chapters 18 through 19? Okay. Would anyone be willing to close us out in prayer tonight? Chris, would you mind closing us in prayer? Thank you, Brad.